The Nick Abbott Habit. There was a tremendous amount of news about this week, but no one was paying any attention because we were all riveted by the choice we have to make in a few weeks' time between someone strong and stable and someone bearded and chaotic. Mrs M strode around the country in her trust-me shoes, saying that she was strong and did strong things in a strong and stable way that was stable while also being very strong. She said that what mattered was strength and stability and that she alone was strong and stable enough to give the country the sort of strong, stable leadership that only she could give. She said that among her strengths was her stability, and that it was her stability that enabled her to be so strong. I don't think I've missed out anything there. It's pretty much what she and every Tory that has said anything for the past month has said, but they've said it in such a strong and stable way. Jeremy Corbyn, on the other hand, has gone practically unheard among the cacophony of phony outrage that's greeted his every pronouncement on any subject created by the right-wing press that's treating him as though, as PM, he might challenge the concentration of the ownership of the press in so few hands. It's almost as though the owners of the press are putting their own business interests first. But that would never happen, would it? Of course, Labour haven't helped themselves by not being able to remember lists of figures, which seems to be the most important thing for a politician to be able to do these days. The endless headlines about this figure for one budget or that figure for another being misquoted or misremembered in an interview by a Labour politician, you could paint France with the ink the papers used to write screaming headlines about that. And all the other parties were barged aside by the newspapers in their rush to smash Jezza into the ground. The Lib Dems must have felt like that bloke from Montenegro that Trump shoved aside to get to the limelight at the NATO summit. Honestly, it was his first trip abroad as president and if he were an actual toddler rather than a man who acts like one. He'd have had his shorts yanked down and his fat little legs slapped. Don't be rude, Donny. That's a very rude Donny. Melania knows what to do when he gets all grabby like that. She just swats him away. Get weird tiny hand away from me. While well, a State Department official said he'd acted like a drunk tourist, shoving his way around the dance floor, stepping on people without realising it. He's like a dad, dancing at a wedding, and the bride's thinking we should never have had a free bar. He's just so embarrassing. He thinks he's being tough and macho, but he ends up looking like a big baby that's never heard the word no. No, Donny. Bad Donny. He struts around like he's been made emperor of the world, and everyone before him should be glorying in the golden magnificence that is him. Speaking of which, when did he go blonde, by the way? Because he used to have this mousy brown hair, and that thatch hovering above his pate isn't white from old age, it's California blonde, like he's the world's most uptight surfer dude. Maybe it comes from a bottle. Maybe it's the same stuff that he dyes his cheeks with. It's a two-in-one, like head and shoulders, except this is hair and face. So he jets off in a first stop Saudi Arabia where he curtsies in front of the king and gets a gold medallion and they get on really well and everything is fantastic, tremendous. Have you noticed how well he gets on with dictators? Putin, Duterte, you know, that nut with the death squads in the Philippines... Erdogan of Turkey. He said that Kim Jong-un from North Korea was great guy, smart cookie, tremendous hair. And then it was off to Israel to see the wall. Best part. And he stopped in to lecture the Pope about how big his inauguration crowd was. Biggest congregation ever. I think you would say that. And the look on the Pope's face when they had their picture taken afterwards. You know, Trump's got his dentures advert grin on and thumbs up as usual, and the Pope's face looks like thunder. 
like he's just been told the wait is over and God has decided that Trump is his new emissary on earth. Sorry, Pope Francis, you're fired. But it was when he got to Europe that the fan really started to get clogged up. There was the shoving the man from Montenegro out the way. We say Montan African-Americans. And that handshake, what is that? He tried to get Macron, the new French president, in his patented macho handshake routine where he grabs someone's hand and yanks them down and toward him. I bet he learned that from a how-to-be-manly course that he sent away for as a kid. Do you have sand kicked in your face in business meetings at the beach? Send nineteen ninety nine now for your how-to-be-a-man-that-even-your-daddy-might-love course. Have you ever seen anyone shake hands like that in your life? How desperate to dominate is this man, and what does it tell you about his actual self-confidence underneath the bluster and the size of his weenie? And when they were sitting down and Trump tried to give Macron the handshake of death and Macron wasn't having it, and he out-squeezed and outlasted the screaming Mimi. You know, they were in the same positions as uh, when Trump refused to shake hands with Angela Merkel. Remember that? And she could barely stop herself laughing. That seems to be the reaction he gets wherever he goes. The other dignitaries of the world are either just blank-faced bemused or are desperately trying not to laugh at the big baby in the grown-up's trousers. And as a final f*** you... When the G7 leaders strolled the 700 yards through Taormina for their photo call, Trump insists on riding on a golf cart. Everybody else walks, but not Donny. Only I get to ride. I'm the rider. And so everyone had to wait for the arrival of the Golden Sultan on his battery-powered magic carpet. I've been to Taormina, by the way. I won a holiday there. I answered some question in one of the newspapers, and pretty much the next day I got a phone call saying I'd won. And my reaction was, what's the catch? And it took quite a while for the nice lady on the other end to convince me that I had actually won a whole holiday. I couldn't believe it. The only thing I won apart from that was a live Rolling Stones album in the early 1980s, which was exactly as bad as you would expect a live Rolling Stones album from the early 1980s to sound. But Tail Mina, oh, it's fantastic. The hotel was stuck up a hill with a view of Mount Etna belching fire in this huge sweep of volcano going all the way down to the sea. It was absolutely epic. It was like Game of Thrones scenery. And now Don is gone, you can go and enjoy it without getting barged out of the way by a bottled blonde boar. You know nothing, Don Trump. And it was all good fun, and at least it took our minds off the news from Manchester this week. But I'd like to spend the rest of this podcast talking about hospitals and why you shouldn't go to one. Here's the thing you need to know about going to a hospital. It can put you in a hospital. My dad's in a hospital. So me and my mum go to visit him on a daily basis, which is a big mistake, huge. The nurses, or angels, as we are encouraged to think of them, say that there had been some tummy troubles on the ward. Now, the phrase tummy troubles makes it sound like what you get when you eat too much chilli. Bit of a rumble down there, but nothing but a glass of milk, and a happy morning sit-down after a good night's rest won't cure. So in that respect, they were lying about that, or at least not making much effort to communicate the threat level that was facing us. And to my eyes, not making much effort seems to be the way with almost all of the staff that I saw in the two different hospitals my dad's been in lately. I don't know, maybe it's the heat they keep the wards at. It's like being a tomato, constantly overwarm and airless. Saps the strength out of me, and I'm only there for a few hours. So maybe it drains the life out of them too. But they don't seem to do much. We keep hearing about the NHS in crisis and there's not enough staff, but if that's true, 
It doesn't seem to translate into the staff that they do have, working frantically to keep up. The ones I saw in two different hospitals just seem to drift to the day, doing the absolute barest minimum they can. Oh, there are brilliant, glowing exceptions. But overall, mostly they sit motionless, staring into computers. There'll be four or five of them in a row, gawping at screens while their patients are just left lying there for hours on end. I didn't see one single person clean anything in the dozens of hours that I was in either hospital. They didn't tidy anything either, and they seemed reluctant to help. One nurse spent two hours leaning on a window ledge, listening to the radio and swiping through her phone. And the radio was tuned at one of those pop stations that presumably she liked, because none of the geriatrics on the ward would have chosen it. My dad would have preferred military marching bands. Maybe that would have woken them up a bit. So, one of these slow-motion nurses had told us that they were busy with this tummy bug, by way of an excuse, at not being there to help one of the patients to the toilet, who was just standing by his bed. He wanted to go, in both senses of the word, but he couldn't move without assistance, and he just stood there, waiting, the alarm bell ringing, no one answering his call. And the nurse outside glanced up at the board to see whose alarm was going off, and just went back to whatever she was doing online, maybe looking for a career in the not-caring profession. Well, this old man was standing there, unsteady on his feet, waiting for the indignity of being helped to the toilet. And like I said, the nurse called it a tummy bug. Now, tummy bug is not what I would call it. I'd call it the thing that almost killed my mother. Because the next day when I got up at my parents' place, this pitiful sound emerged from upstairs, and I went to see that my mother had been replaced by a grey, hollowed-out husk of a woman who was throwing up about every two minutes, and had been doing that, apparently, since two in the morning. But she didn't want to wake me, because I need my sleep, or she didn't want to be a fuss, and she'd dig her own grave in the back garden and pop herself in right after she cooked me breakfast, and did her want any eggs, so she would drag herself along the pavement to the shops and back, because she'd run out, you know, like her mother. And on seeing her, my first reaction was to think, what's the number for 999? I said, I'm calling your doctor. And she said, in a deathbed whisper, no, no, no. It hasn't been 24 hours. The doctor won't come if it's been less than 24 hours. I thought, if you last 24 minutes, I'd be surprised. And I said, I'm calling him. And she said, no, no, no. I don't want to be a bother. But could you get me a bucket? Because I don't have the strength to stand up anymore to throw up in the toilet. She didn't even have the strength to sit up to take a drink of water. So I disobeyed my mother. And I called the doctor. And he came and took about two minutes to call an ambulance. And now I had my dad in one hospital and my mum in another on opposite ends of the town. And I thought, thank God I'm not infected with anything like that, because I've got tickets to the Pink Floyd exhibition at the V&A, and I'd be very pissed off if I died before I could get to see it. Also, I put a lot of plants in the garden last year at great expense, and I want to see how they grow this year, because they did absolutely naff all last year. So I visit my mum and my dad, racking up the miles between the two, and after a while, it was safe for me to come back home. And before I drive home, I get a tinge of what people used to call giddiness. I felt a bit giddy. No room spin or psychedelic swirling, just a light sensation of someone tickling my brain with one of those rainbow dusters Ken Dodd uses as a prop. And I got home OK. And I had a gargantuan pizza and some of that alcohol stuff that is popular for relieving tension after a long day of tending to the sick, and all was well. Until about five in the morning when the giddiness had become a dizziness, but not in a good way. And I thought, maybe I should get out of bed and pop to the bathroom. No panic, no rush, 
I thought as I strolled down the hall, and about four paces from the bathroom door, the sense of there being no rush turned into the sort of feeling that Londoners must have felt when the air raid siren went off in the Second World War. It was like what the crew on a submarine must have felt when the tannoy said brace for impact. It was like what must have gone through soldiers' minds when someone shouted, Incoming! Except this was outgoing. And I rounded the corner of the bathroom and there was the target right in front of me, but the seat was down in the polite manner, which was a big mistake. Huge. It was amazing that something so violent gave almost no warning of its arrival at all. Literally one second I was casually sauntering down the hall, three seconds later an amount Vesuvius flow of hot lava was pouring out of me like a channel had opened up to hell and the devil had rerouted the river Styx through my mouth. It covered everything. And I do mean everything. I think there's surfaces on the other side of the planet that got some on them. It's amazing how much a stomach can hold. I think mine's held on to every meal I've ever eaten. Farley's rusks were in there. I'm sure I saw some tapioca pudding. No diced carrots, though. I haven't eaten them since school, and only once, so maybe they evaporated inside me. God, I used to hate those. I mean, school dinners were almost always revolting, but diced carrots, or worse, vegetable medley... That sounds like a parade in a vegan commune, but for the benefit of those who never ate school dinners in the 70s, I can tell you they were the most disgusting things man has ever invented. I used to eat the peas and leave the rest of that white and green and orange cubed stuff on the side, along with pretty much everything else on the plate that wasn't potato. How did they make it taste so bad? I think they used to boil them in the water that farmers used for the sheep dip. Well, you know, waste not, want not. I don't mind carrots at all. Carrots are fine, in moderation. It's the dicing what concerned me. The process seemed to take a perfectly benign vegetable and make it into something you could use to torture the enemy. I'm on about three or four carrots a day now, man, but I can handle it. I'm just seeing in the dark better, that's all. And for younger listeners, by the way, that's the old government heroin advert. They used to actually advertise heroin on the telly. Can you believe that? Actually, it was supposed to be an anti-heroin advert. They picked some skinny youth and dressed him in a black leather jacket and put him in an alleyway and had him say something like, heroin, I don't know what all the fuss is about, I can handle it. And then he says, so I'll do a bit of heroin now and again, so what? And then he's crouching and he says, it's no problem, I've got this thing under control, I've just got a bit of flute a day. And the government thought, wow, we've really done a great job there. That'll win the war on drugs. And they went off to celebrate with 12 pints in a carton of ciggies. But the kids looked at the guy in the advert and thought, wow, he looks cool. I'd like to be as cool as that. And the girls had the poster on their wall of this dreamboat on smack, and it all seemed so attractive. And as it was what Margaret Thatcher didn't want them to do, that sealed it. Anyway, so there I was, crouched, just like the guy in the heroin advert, thinking, it's just a bit of norovirus, I can handle it. And then the eruptions started up again, and they came, and they came, and not just from the front. I was like a Lancaster bomber. I could fire deadly force front and back. And I would take a short time out, go back to bed, wish for a speedy death before having to do the short sprint back to the bathroom before I crack a toad all over the bedsheets. After a while, I rummaged through the bathroom cabinet to see if there was anything that hadn't expired in the last millennium that was good for what I'd got, and all I could come up with was Rennie which was like putting a damp towel on a meltdown in a nuclear power plant. 
Honestly, if I'd taken an episode of the Antiques Roadshow, it would have done about as much good. Time was the thing that cured me. That and lots of water, which I recommend, even if you're well, assuming there is no alcohol at hand. I've been on simple foods and a minimal amount of beer and wine ever since. Of course, a medical professional wouldn't call it minimal, but what do they know? They change their minds about what is and is not good for you, like most people change their socks on a daily basis. Last thing I heard, salt is good for you in large amounts. Pretty soon they'll be recommending a hearty breakfast of frosties, swimming in whiskey, covered in a light dusting of crack. And I still dread that my dad will catch this thing, because he's already in hospital, so where will the ambulance take him? And my mum's OK now, looking like a human being again. But the moral to this podcast is, don't go to hospital. Unless your doctor specifically recommends it. And if that happens, get another doctor. That's it. You can read my books, which contain the columns I've written over the years. There's quite a few of them now. And they're in the Amazon Kindle store, the last of which has me being sneaked up on by a creature from the deep. That one's even available in Dead Tree paperback, as well as Save the Planet ebook form. I think you'll find them amusing and delightful and fantastic. And I'll be back on LBC Friday and Saturday nights at 10. I'm back here for another podcast in the middle of June on the 16th. Until then... I appreciate your attention. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!